Hello and welcome to Battleground Ukraine with me, Patrick Bishop and Saul David. Well, it's a case of all quiet or quietish on the Eastern Front at the moment. It seems fairly clear that the Russian offensive of the last weeks has fizzled out with little gain to compensate for all the dead bodies, the destroyed equipment and the expended ammunition. Is this the lull before the storm? Well, we'll have to wait and see. But the talk coming out of Kiev this week sounds very confident that their forces will be able to achieve much more when their turn comes than the Russians have managed. The post-mortem on the Russian lack of success seems to have started already with reports of high-level sackings as the blame game begins inside the Russian military and the Kremlin. Vladimir Putin has also been rattling his nuclear sabre again with the announcement that he will be deploying battlefield nuclear missiles to Belarus sometime soon. But first, these dismissals. Unconfirmed but credible postings by Russian mill bloggers are saying that Rustam Muradov, the general commanding operations in western Donetsk Oblast in recent months, has been relieved of his duties. Now, he commands or commanded the Eastern Military District Forces, which actually is one of the five big military districts in Russia and furthest east. So we're really talking about Siberia. But the relevance to the war, of course, is the forces that naturally come under that district. And with these forces, it it must be said he's had a notable lack of success. There are also rumours that the commander of the Western Military District Forces, Colonel General Evgeny Nikiforov, is for the chop. What do you make of all of this, Patrick? Well, these mill bloggers are saying that uh, Muradov was responsible for uh, big failures in Western Donetsk, uh, including, do you remember the assault on Pavlivka back in October, November, very, very high casualty rate, and also the prolonged and failed effort to take Vuladar, which was in the headlines a little while back. But for me, the important thing that this guy's been in post since October, and that suggests to me that he was put in to replace someone else who was not considered up to the job. And now it would seem that uh, Muradov is not much cop either in the eyes of his superiors. So it means that whoever replaces him is unlikely to be a huge improvement, uh, which should be a comforting thought for the Ukrainians. Uh, But I do think it's highly unlikely that at this point of the game, uh, there's some overlooked military genius languishing somewhere who's going to turn things around for the Russians. Yes, um, I rather agree, Patrick. It's often the case, as we know, in wartime, that when the fighting actually kicks off, the various defects of commanders who are perfectly capable in peacetime are cruelly exposed, uh, leading to their prompt removal. It's happened so many times, hasn't it? One interesting one in the Second World War, the British Army, at the start, Gort, uh, we know him, of course, from the failures at Dunkirk, but he he began the war as chief of general staff. He's moved to command the BEF and his replacement, Edward Ironside, great name, uh, sort of medieval connotations, lasted less than a year. Dill takes over from him, John Dill. He's in place a little longer, but it wasn't until December 1941. So we're a good two years into the war that Churchill finally settled on a man who would play a major role in Allied victory, and that's Sir Alan Brooke. Uh, He holds the post for the rest of the war, but it does take him two long years to get into that post. And the other interesting thing about Brooke and the post of Chief of Imperial General Staff more generally is that it's a kind of overall administrative grand strategic role and you don't get to command in the field. And there's this wonderful moment uh, in 1944 where Brooke thinks there's a good chance he's going to be given command of the armies that invade Normandy uh, and uh, Churchill rather poo-poos that and says, no, you're far too important. I need you. And the job, of course, as we know, goes to Eisenhower. 
Yes, it's a sobering thought, isn't it? I mean, uh, in the Western desert, it took two years to find the right man for the job. Um, so Churchill burned through Wavell and Auchinleck before he finally got to Montgomery. But like I say, I don't think it's uh, very probable that someone of the stature of Allenbrook or Monty is waiting in the wings, especially when you consider another rumour that's flying around, which is that our old friend General Sergei Surovikin uh, may be making a comeback. You'll remember old General Armageddon, as he's not so fondly known from his exploits in the Second Chechen War and in Syria. He was sacked back in January as overall commander of the Russian invasion force and replaced by his boss, Valery Gerasimov. And that was because of his poor performance to date. Um, if he's coming back now, it would suggest a certain amount of barrel scraping is going on, wouldn't you think, Saul? Though uh, that said, he's got, this time he's got a different task, hasn't he? And maybe an easier one. Well, it should be. Um, I mean, what the Russians should be doing now, given that, as you say, their that you know their vaunted offensive seems to have fizzled out or is fizzling out, and I'll come on to that in a second. Is that what they should be doing now, Patrick? Is preparing for a defensive battle, but the desperate need, the, almost the sort of political imperative for a battlefield victory, means that the Russians can't quite stop attacking yet. And even at Bakhmut, where the latest reports, I mean, that's just in today, say they've taken control of the Azom industrial plant and now have about 65% of the city in their hands. Whether this means they're likely to get their hands on the rest anytime soon is another matter. And as I kind of hinted, what they really should be doing now is shoring up their defences for the attack they know must be coming. And that's, of course, the Ukrainian counterattack. What they need to do now is rest their troops, stockpile ammunition, um, build new defences. Yes, they have been building defences, apparently, as they were reading, actually, on the border in Russia, which, you know, doesn't give you a huge amount of confidence that they think they're going to be able to stop the Ukrainian counterattack and they might get all the way to their borders. But that's what they should be doing. And it doesn't actually look like uh, they are doing that at the moment. They still need this final battlefield victory. Yes, there are lots of um, rather strange moves being made that uh, defy kind of you know, logical interpretation, such as this announcement by Putin the other day that he's going to deploy tactical nukes in Belarus. I mean, that sounds to me just like more bluster. It wouldn't seem to have very much bearing on the Russians' ability to withstand the Ukrainian offensive. And, you know, I would interpret it as just another attempt to frighten the West, which uh, so far, hasn't been very successful, has it? No one's been terribly impressed by all the nuclear rhetoric. And with each new utterance, the potency of these threats rather diminishes, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I would. Um, it's a red herring, this this Belarus thing. I mean, not for the Belarusians, actually. Uh, the opposition leaders come out and said it's basically illegal what they're trying to do, uh, put Russian-controlled nukes, albeit tactical battlefield nukes, inside a, you know, a sovereign country, although we know, of course, that it's not quite sovereign. It's, it's very much under the uh, firm control of Putin. But what is that actually going to do in terms of uh, strategic influence? Not a lot, frankly, because the, the tactical nukes that the Russians have could be used right across Ukraine anyway. So it really makes little difference. This is just posturing. It's an attempt to say, look, we've got allies. It's also an indication to the West that you've done this sort of thing for years. I mean, the, the Americans have had their own missiles in places like Turkey. And we can do likewise. I mean, that argument was going doing the rounds all the way back to the Cuban Missile Crisis. So no real uh, 
big change here. This is a PR announcement. It's going to make no real difference to the battlefield. And one of the things it might do, of course, Patrick, uh, given the comment I just made about the opposition uh, spokesman for Belarus or opposition politician, is it it might provoke more anti-Russian feeling within Belarus. And we'll see how that turns out. Okay, changing the subject completely uh, and introducing a little bit of levity, because frankly, we need it when we're covering a war, is the arrival of yet another celebrity to Kiev this week. Did you see that, Patrick? I did, yeah, Orlando Bloom. But I'm afraid I had to ask my daughter who uh, Orlando Bloom was. You know, you no doubt know, Saul, being a bit younger than me. Yeah, um, but there was another one. Did you see that one about Bear Grylls? I didn't really get my head around the details. What was that one about? Yeah, I mean, this is another great story, isn't it? Bear Grylls, as you know, I think you know, Patrick, uh, for years, you know, he's the great survivalist, uh, claims he was in special forces. I mean, he was in the uh, reserve SAS. I think I think he, he was a member of 21 SAS for a while, but was never a fully badge member of the SAS. But nevertheless, he's, you know, he's he's made a great brand. He's represented by my agent, so I better be careful what I say. But he's made a great brand out of his survival skills. And of course, he's invited a lot of high profile uh, celebrities and politicians to join him in the wild, uh, including, of course, Barack Obama. Now, he couldn't do this with Zelensky, but the Zelensky story is interesting because apparently it was Zelensky contacted Grills, or at least Grills people, rather the other way around, and invited him to Ukraine. So you've got this rather bizarre film, which has just gone out on Channel 4 with uh, Grills <laughs> walking along the streets of Ukraine. I mean, you know, there's lots of filming in, in different bits of Ukraine, chatting to Zelensky. So the question is, what's it really all about? Well, you get the feeling this is all part of Zelensky's charm offensive to influence the West. There was one rather bizarre moment, not on the film, actually, but uh, Grills mentioned this afterwards, where Grills is trying to lighten the mood by offering Zelensky a piece of chocolate. And before he had a chance to munch on it, the Secret Service came in, confiscated it because they were worried that Grills might be trying to poison him. I'm not quite sure what uh, the motivation would have been there. Um, But at least Grills came out with the best line in the program. And that was almost the last line. And he said, Ukraine is a country at the moment steeped in tears, but also in courage. And I think we can all agree on that. Here, here. Uh, but there's no doubt that Zelensky's winning hands down, isn't he, in the contest with Putin for celebrity endorsements. Hollywood has been beating a path to his door. Uh, just going back over seeing who's been there recently, Sean Penn, Ben Stiller, Angela Jolie, Jessica Chastain, plus, of course, some rather predictable <laughs> limelight seekers like uh, Bono and Richard Branson, uh, why they think their support matters is a bit of a mystery. But I know that Hollywood types aren't uh, known for their grasp of military, diplomatic and political matters. But I do have to agree with the succinct analysis of Sean Penn when someone asked him why he felt the need to demonstrate uh, his support. And his answer was, because if Russia wins, we're all F-U-C-K-E-D. And I don't think you can really argue with that, can you? But I mean, back in the day, Putin did have his share of um, celebrity fanboys and girls. We always remember you know, his rendition of um, Blueberry Hill back in uh, 2010, I think, uh, with a sort of adoring audience of celebrities looking on. His probably highest profile fan was Jared Depardieu, the French actor, who uh, was rewarded for his support with Russian citizenship. Now, they've all gone except one, and that's Stephen Siegel, who some of you may remember as a martial arts expert and star of multiple director video 
action movies. Um, I think all those blows to the head must have done something to his brains because he's still a huge Putin fan, as well as a uh, naturalized Russian citizen. And he's for the last five years, he's been Russia's special envoy to the US. Now, all this makes me wonder who, who's going to play, uh, when the movie comes, who's going to play Zelensky? I, would, I think Orlando Bloom may well have been angling for that uh, in, in his visit. So who, who do you think uh, would be suitable for Putin, Saul? Well, Seagal's available. Uh, he's there. Um, he's got a martial arts <laughs> background. We've seen, we've seen some of the stuff with Putin, you know, bare-chested, uh, fishing. Um, he likes his martial arts. They're the same age. Uh, and they both probably got a relatively similar IQ. So I, I think Seagal would be an ideal uh, person to play Putin. Uh, but it does make you think that, that, you know, the contrasting leadership styles of these two men is quite marked, isn't it? I mean, they are polar opposites. Um, Putin is a very old-fashioned figure, I think, to my eyes. You know, the lifestyle, all that bling and the kitsch. Women, his attitude to women, they're just chattels, mindless babes. I'm thinking of his partner, Elena Kabaeva who, again, is a very traditional figure, adoring, unthreatening, which um, really couldn't be, again, a a contrast with Zelensky's uh, wife. You know, the difference between Alena and Olena, Olena Zelenska, that is, whose stature as a world leader isn't really that far behind that of her husband. And another big difference that strikes me is this degree of physical courage they project. I mean, Zelensky is clearly a, a brave man. But Putin must seem even to his own people as a rather kind of timid, indeed cowardly figure. I'm thinking of that table that we used to see when he received visitors. But it looks like about a mile long, and it's there to protect him from COVID. And then using body doubles to visit Sevastopol and Mariupol. It's all pretty feeble, isn't it? And totally at, at odds with the macho posturing that, that he's gone in for in his propaganda. Yeah, and you juxtaposed him with Zelensky, and quite right too. We remember, of course, in the first few days when the Americans said, look, you know, we'll, we'll get you out of there because it looks like your life's in danger. And he said, absolutely not, I'm not going. Since then, he's pretty much worn combat gear the whole time to, you know, to align himself with the soldiers. He's regularly visited the troops on the front line, uh, something Putin, if Putin has done at all, it's only in a very kind of stage-managed, safe way. But no, Zelensky's gone right up to the front line to award medals, to talk to the troops. And of course, he's also done the other vital job as a wartime leader, which is make regular appeals to foreign leaders for their support. He brings to mind, of course, and I'm not the first one to make this analogy, Patrick, the Ukraine and Churchill, and I think that's a fair analogy. Yep, no, I, I think there's, uh, there, are, there are valid comparisons there. Okay, well, that's enough for us. Join us in part two when we'll be doing our best to answer your many questions. Welcome back to part two. So another packed postbag this week from all over the world. It's great to get so many questions and comments. We're going to kick off with one from Jamie Steele from uh, Whitstable. And he says, thanks for providing your email address for listener comments, something most podcasts don't do. Uh, He said recently, we said we were open to considering the opposite view about the war in Ukraine. And he's taken this as an invitation to provide us with a list of potential candidates for this, starting with John J. Mearsheimer, who's an international relations theorist. He's a professor at the University of of Chicago. And his name often comes up, actually, as someone who puts the alternative point of view. 
Um, no, he is. I've looked into him. He's an interesting character. I've listened to some of his lectures, which you can find easily enough. He's a former military man. He was in the Air Force. He's about 75 years old. He takes a, a kind of Hobbesian view of, of the world generally, and that his thesis is that despite apparent progress towards democracy, human rights, etc., the world remains a pretty dangerous and rapacious place where powers will constantly seek to expand. Eternal conflict is inevitable. And he calls this doctrine offensive realism. Uh, which is all, you know, it's a, it's a way of looking at things, but it becomes uh, controversial uh, when, when he starts saying that actually the West was to blame for the conflict in Ukraine, that Russia was really just defending its national interests. Uh, and that's where I, I sort of start parting company, although I am prepared to listen. The other people on, on the list um, that, we, that Jamie sent us, um, I'm not at all sure about them. They all seem to be professional controversialists often very pro-Russian and pro-Chinese. Yeah, thanks for that, Patrick. Um, you know, we, we've dealt with Mearsheimer on a previous episode. We, we're, we're getting lots of queries coming in because people are obviously seeing him as someone who, you know, he holds a post in a US university and, 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 and arguably someone you should be listened to. But be wary that not everyone with an academic qualification uh, talks a lot of sense, particularly towards the end of their careers. Or they may just be controversialists and want to say something different. Or they may have political affiliations, which we don't know about. Even academics, you know, are influenced by their politics. Uh, not every voice is equal, I'm afraid. Uh, this is a bit like the, you know, the, free, the freedom of speech debate. Of course, we need to listen to reasoned argument. We need to hear other people's opinions. But uh, certainly not on this podcast that we prepared to allow people to spout what, in my view, is pro-Putin propaganda. Now, if people don't like the pro-Ukraine uh, line we're taking on this, well, they know what they can do. But it seems to both Patrick and I quite clear who the villains and who the heroes in this story are. So I think enough said on that, Patrick, and let's move on to question number two which comes from Rich Cole. The question here is about the future of Russia and whether the war is going to be as ruinous as many other conflicts have been. And he goes through quite a number, including the Crimean War, the war with Japan in 1904 to 5, the Great War, which, of course, ends in revolution. And even the Second World War, he says, was disastrous for Russians, if not for the Soviet leadership, because, of course, of the casualties that were taken and the fact that the regime thereafter, you know, gradually imposed its will on the Russian people, it had already done so in the 30s. So his broader question is, is this war going to be as disastrous as all the rest of them? What do you think, Patrick? Well, I, th I think you're right. It's a depressing projection, but I think probably insofar as one can tell a reasonably kind of uh, credible one. Uh, and I think that even if the war in Russia, R Russia's defeat essentially in the war does lead to regime change, I think the, the consensus view that the replacement will certainly not necessarily be a pro-Western regime that kind of embraces our values. It's more likely to be more of the same. And that, for me, suggests it's going to be tilting eastward. So, you know, the great Russian perennial question, do we look east or do we look west, will be answered um, by them leaning towards a lopsided relationship with China, which will, again, bring no good to the Russian people. It just means no end to the repression and to the to the brainwashing. So I'm afraid, yeah, the outlook is pretty pessimistic on that one. Yeah, I rather agree with you. Now we're going to come on to the uh, China relationship uh, with a couple of other questions later on. So we'll leave that for the moment uh, uh, and move on to the next question. This is from Dave. He's from the UK. Really enjoyed the podcast. 
Uh, listening to Mark Urban on the use of airborne forces, armored vehicles, and manned aircraft, I'm struck by what seems to be an agreed assumption that there was a time when they could be used successfully and with acceptable losses. Other than in limited Western conflicts, in what wars have armies been committed to fight where the casualties have not been serious? Um, well, certainly... <laughs> It's a good question. I mean, Western democracy, if I'm getting this question right, I'm not sure I am getting this right, but I'm, I'm just going to make a quick point. Um, and that is that one of the reasons why we're seeing Russia willing to take so many casualties is because that is the way it goes to war. It, an authoritarian regime doesn't need to be concerned about casualties, so it can use all the different weapon systems it has and hope to overwhelm the enemy. I mean, one of the most misunderstood battles of the Second World War is the Battle of Kursk, which is seen as a great... Uh, Russian tank victory. In reality, and recent scholarship has been done on this by a very brilliant um, British academic whose book is coming out on the centerpiece of the of the Battle of Kursk uh, in a few months' time, you can see that the Russians took absolutely catastrophic losses in tanks in that battle, but particularly uh, at the heart of the battle. And the technological advantage that the uh, Germans had over them was one of the major causes for all these losses. But it didn't matter because they had so many tanks and they were prepared to absorb so many losses. So I think this tendency we're seeing in the Ukrainian war uh, has a long history as far as Russia is concerned. Yes, I mean, there is obviously an imbalance in what Western democracies are prepared to accept in terms of casualties and what uh, totalitarian regimes are. I mean, you just thinking about the numbers in the Vietnam War, I think the total American losses were about 68,000. Does that sound right to you, Saul? And that was, you know, a huge ongoing political convulsion that, that sort of gripped the nation over morality of the war, but also the number of, of young Americans who are losing their lives in it. You don't see that here so far in, in Russia, but also just the wars we've been fighting so far this century, you know, massive imbalance in losses inflicted and, and losses suffered. So we're talking in British terms in the wars of the 21st century in terms of hundreds, and even they cause political problems. So yeah, a very, very different way of looking at the world and warfare. It's almost as though we've gone back to the 19th century in in terms of this sort of technological imbalance against our enemies. But th this doesn't mean any more than it did in the 19th century that that the tables could be turned. And of course, we saw that in Afghanistan because almost impossible to fight a war. You know, you'll know this, Patrick. I mean, got a lot closer than I have to these types of conflicts where you're basically fighting a whole population, or at least you're fighting an enemy that's embedded within the population. So I saw Afghanistan very much like uh, Vietnam. Frankly, it was. NATO's Vietnam of the of the 21st century. Slightly off the normal uh, track of questioning, Mike in Hampshire asks, what do you think about the Conservative Party giving awards to, to Russians uh, such as Lebedev? He's the, uh, I think, the owner of the Evening Standard, if I'm correct, raising him to the House of Lords or the Conservative Party, its history of taking large donations from Shady Russians. Well, I, I just thinking personally, I feel deeply ashamed at the way that London's been a laundromat for dirty Russian money, aided and abetted by greedy lawyers, estate agents, etc. And as you say, the Conservative Party has never really cared over much about where donations come from. In the case of Lebedev, that's a very sort of glaring example of it. And it basically signals that to the world that you can buy position and titles here in the UK which I think is why the honor system has uh, for so long been a joke. Okay, here's a question from Ronnie from Vienna. Um, 
Listening to this week's episode on President Xi's visit to Moscow prompted me to think on other motives for China's action linked to an earlier episode, which included some thoughts on what might happen if Russia loses the war. Orthodox thinking is that Xi supports Russia because it's challenging the dominance of the Western democracies, etc., etc. But if Russia loses the war and starts to break up, that could offer Xi an even greater prize, the opportunity to reverse the 19th century Amur annexation of the territory, which is now southeastern Siberia, including the port of Vladivostok and the island of Sakhalin, and with easy access to the Sea of Japan. Um, what do you think about this, Patrick? It's an interesting thought, isn't it? We've made the point, the more orthodox point, that it needs Russia's backing because of this you know, anti-West kind of grouping it's trying to develop. But is there, are there actually territorial advantages for China if Russia is weakened? Yeah, well, other listeners have made this um, point. John Lydiard from New Zealand, he makes the same point. I think, yeah, I mean, we're, I think we've lost sight a little bit of the fact that there is um, a long history of animosity, territorial disputes, ideological disputes between China and Russia. And so the idea that they're kind of um, bosom buddies, historically speaking, is a mistaken one. Uh, having said that, I think that, that they're eyeing this this whole situation with some pleasure, the Chinese. I think they see it as being a win-win for them, whichever way it goes. And having been initially nervous, they now think there could be big advantages, uh, whatever the outcome. Anyway, this is clearly a very rich subject. And we're now uh, looking out to find an expert guest to range over it in the coming weeks. Okay, moving on to John Cunliffe. Uh, he lives in Chablis, France. Sounds like he's uh, British uh, to begin with. It certainly uh, writes his English well. Um, are the Ukrainians getting enough of what they need so that when it is coupled with their spirit and prowess, a real difference can be made on the battlefield? How alive do you think our leaders are to the fact that if Ukraine does not get enough of what they need, uh, then they will in large part be responsible for the geopolitical consequences of Ukraine losing? And thus, how historically will they be viewed? Great question. Uh, and thank you, John, because, you know, as historians, we really need 20 or 30 years down the line. And if we do go 20 or 30 years down the line and what you suggest comes to pass, uh, it won't be favorable on the decision makers in, in Western governments. Uh, and people will be looking at what was given when and what, the, you know, the classic thing we always do as history is where were these hinge moments? Where could they have made a difference? We're waiting for the uh, counteroffensive, uh, the Ukrainian counteroffensive, but there are already voices within the Ukrainian government saying, this is our last chance. We must win the war this year. And there are obviously political reasons for doing that. We don't want to get into a long war of attrition with Russia, is the point made by the Ukrainian. I think it's a speech of their houses of parliament. And if that's true, and this counteroffensive doesn't uh, recover even all the territory bar Crimea, you can see uh, they're possibly being down the track. Uh, accusations made against Western leaders. They were too slow. They didn't give them enough weapons. They were too fearful of the you know, the so-called escalation uh, issue, which Hugh Strawn mentioned many years ago on this show, wasn't really an issue at all. So, yes, I agree with you, uh, John. They do need more kit. They need it quicker. Uh, even this week, actually, I attended a briefing, which I haven't got into in detail because there wasn't that much interesting information on it. But it was a, a briefing by the Foreign Office at which they made it pretty clear that the British government approves the sending of more longer range weapons. So and yet that still hasn't been resolved. So, uh, you know, to your point. Yeah, it has been drip feeding, hasn't it, really? And I'm reminded of that remark by one of our previous guests, a Ukrainian lady who said that, you know, it's basically like the pa the patient is stretched out uh, on the operating table. And it's just getting enough to keep it going without it actually uh, being cured. And I think that's maybe how it will look if this 
spring offensive doesn't deliver the decisive blow that's needed to break the deadlock. Okay, on to one from Greece. Uh, Dear Saul and Patrick, thank you for your great work on the conflict in Ukraine. Uh, How do you comment on Turkey's and Prime Minister Erdogan's in particular approach? Is Turkey a challenging ally, as the US Secretary of State said last week? Please keep in mind that I am Greek. uh, Therefore, I'd love to hear your views on that. Yeah, I I quite like uh, Anthony Blinken. I think he doesn't hold back, does he? Um, He he sort of says what he wants to say in, 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 in interesting language. Yeah, well, at first sight, Turkey, Ukraine, it seems to be, it's very, very nuanced, isn't it? I mean, you get, they give with one hand, they take with the other. So it's been very diplomatically supportive uh, of Ukraine, condemned all the annexations, uh, in practical terms, supplied the Bayraktar drones, which were very, very effective on the battlefield against the Russians. Uh, The Black Sea Grain Initiative last summer, remember that, which... um, freed up Ukrainian grain exports, very, very important to them, but no actual sanctions against Russia. So I think what what, what this is is a reflection of the incredibly complex geographical position that, that Turkey finds itself in. It's got Syria on one side, Ukraine nearby, border with Iran. Uh, so you've got to expect nuances, uh, nuances that are so nuanced, they sometimes appear contradictory. I think the golden rule to apply here is that um, President Erdogan's calculation will always be uh, what is good for Turkey and what is good for himself. Okay, moving on. Um, Nice point made here by Andy Bradshaw. It's not really a question. He's just kind of uh, putting us straight on a few things. And I suspect Andy uh, is ex-military, given the sort of knowledge he seems to have about weapon systems. He makes the point that Patrick was worried in a previous pod, I think that was last week, that the West is using up all its weapons in Ukraine, meaning it's easier for China to invade Taiwan. Uh, And he doesn't agree with that. And this is why Ukraine is basically getting, he says, land based weapon systems and maybe second tier aircraft and systems. What isn't being used up is naval weaponry or the main air force arsenals, the two main branches you need to stop an invasion. He also says the Taiwan Strait is 100 miles uh, wide and that China doesn't really have a proven amphibious capability, which is what it's going to need to attack that mainland. Uh, And the final point, any invasion force is going to be near impossible to hide in today's surveillance world, which is the point made by uh, Mark Urban uh, in our big interview last week. So moving assets into place as a counter would also not be a problem. I hope this calms Patrick's worries (laughs) about Taiwan for the moment. Uh, Does it, Patrick? In a word, yes or no? Uh, well, they, they are indeed comforting thoughts. Uh, thanks for that, Andy. Okay, Felix from London. Uh, love the pod. Please keep up the good work. The Ukrainian government has been saying in the past week that as things stand, they haven't received the kit they need. So this is a follow-up from the previous question. Um, is there an indication of how much of the kit has been promised by NATO allies has actually arrived? Well, the good news this week, I think, for those of us who are hoping the counteroffensive is going to make a real difference, is the Challenger 2s and some of the Leopards have actually just arrived. The tank crews, moreover, have been trained and therefore are ready to go. Now, this might be an indication, uh, we don't know for sure, that the counteroffensive is going to take place sometime soon. That's in the next uh, few weeks, possibly the next couple of months. Uh, And again, going back to that briefing, Britain said that Ukraine would counterattack when it was ready but the implication from the briefing was that the plans were well in hand. So so that's some good news. But yes, the broader point here is generally the progress of the delivery has been far too slow. One here from Justin, which I'll answer briefly. He's got a question about information warfare. He says the pervasiveness of Russian 
propaganda and censorship is often cited. And while he doesn't dispute that, he, he has concerns about the extent to which the citizens of the Democratic Alliance supporting Ukraine is subject to the same censorship and propaganda, but we just don't know it. And uh, he cites an interview he saw with a, a long time ago now with a KGB colonel who said, the thing is that in Russia, we already know our media is censored, but in the West, you seem to think that your media isn't. So his question is, in your opinion, how pervasive is propaganda and censorship from the media of the country supporting Ukraine? He doesn't want to leave us in any doubt about where's, where his loyalties lie. He's, he, he thinks Ukraine is in the right. But to answer the question, well, I don't think that we do swallow Ukrainian statements unquestioningly. And you're right that it's very sparing uh, in what it tells us, what the authorities tell us. But I think it's more uh, withholding information rather than spreading disinformation. And I think when comparing you know, Western media to Russian media, there's a huge societal difference here, which is that in the West, you've got a choice. You have access to all sorts of different points of view, all sorts of, of information. In Russia, there is none. Okay, we've got a good question here from Harvey Townsend, because this is a conversation I've had with a lot of people too. He says, I'm wondering if you can shed more light on the question of Crimea, as it is very confusing as to who has a more valid claim. Obviously, he's talking about Ukraine or Russia. Many people I speak to in the UK are well-read in history and supporters of Ukraine have a differing opinion of Crimea. And then he goes through the basic beats of the story, Potemkin helping the Ottoman Empire in 1774 and subsequently negotiating by 1783 that Crimea would merge with what was then the Russian Empire. Crimean Tatars declare independence at the end of the Russian Civil War and then are starved and persecuted by the Stalinist regime. By the end of 1944, they had been killed or deported almost completely. 1954, Khrushchev allocates Crimea to Ukraine for ease of administration, and then we know what happens in 2014. Uh, Therefore, with any peace negotiation, where does Crimea stand? It seems more Russian than Ukrainian. Well, it might seem like that, uh, but Harvey, but no, I, I wouldn't agree at all. If it's first conquered by the Russian Empire rather than Russia, and that and that's an important distinction. Um, if anyone has genuine irredentist claims, it is of course the uh, indigenous population, the Crimean Tatars. And the point is, in my view, by 1991, Crimea is part of Ukraine, uh, legally part of Ukraine, which geographically makes sense. Have a look at the map. And it's taken away by an illegal invasion. It should be returned or a dangerous precedent is created. Phew. Well, we uh, squeezed in as many as we could, but we still didn't get through anything like the whole post bag. But rest assured, we do read all of them carefully and we try and sort of range across the subjects that you're bringing up uh, so you at least you we hope you get some sort of uh, answer to the to the query you raised um apologies anyway for those who weren't specifically name checked but do join us next wednesday for the battleground ukraine big interview with another great guest and next week for another in-depth look at events goodbye